So this morning we can open our Bibles up to Philippians 4, and we've come this far in the the book of Philippians, and we're going to try to finish it out today. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So I'm sure you've heard somebody somewhere say before that the Bible is not relevant to us today. Well, right off the bat, Paul is um, trying to help these two women who are disputing. So right there, we can reject that notion. Um, It's... It's very applicable to us. We still have women disputing in the church. Um, but uh, truly, uh, it is, it's something that we can learn from. So Paul does uh, implore Euodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. So we've seen this topic of unity come up a lot in this letter. And we know if we look back, uh, to the origin of the Philippian church, we can see that there is a lot of diversity there, uh, just to start out with. So you've got the the woman named Lydia. She was a former Jew who was from Thyatira, and uh, it said back in Acts 16 that she was a seller of purple dye and purple goods. So she she evidently would have been one of the wealthier people in the area uh, just because of what she did. So you've got her and her whole household that came to the Lord. So you've got that background, and then you've got the Philippian jailer who was saved along with his whole household when Paul and Silas were freed from prison. You've got him... Uh, possibly several of those other prisoners who were freed in that miraculous earthquake. So you've got all these people, and even still, do you remember that slave girl that was possessed by the demon uh, that was driven out by Paul? She, I would think that she would have come to the Lord after that experience. So we're not really sure about that. But um, you've got all of these different backgrounds. And they're all coming together under this umbrella of the church. And this would have been a very new idea at this time. The church was just being planted around uh, this this area in the, Medi- the Mediterranean. Uh, so you've got all these backgrounds. Well, naturally, when we're very different, we think of things differently. We see things through different lenses. And that can cause some divisions and some disputes among us. Paul addresses that idea of unity in his letter to them, and he hits on it several different times. But even here, we can be united, and we will come across disagreements. Uh, Obviously, it's happened before, and it will certainly happen again. But we need to remember that we are to be of the same mind in Christ Jesus. So that is what bonds all of us together. We're a body of believers who operate under the same kingdom and for the same goal. And 
in our race, in our Christian walk, we'll have different twists and turns than anybody else, but we're running towards the same goal and with the same purpose in mind. So that is what unites us in the church. Paul says, And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He says, true companion here. And another way to say that would be yoke fellow. So you have this idea of someone who is bonded together with you um, under either a burden or in the same type of cause. So here he's saying yoke fellow. And the word here could be seen as a proper noun, like Paul referring to a specific man in the Philippian church, or it could be seen as just saying, hey, friend. So the name would be Sisygus, and um, it means this yoke fellow or this true companion. So we're not sure there, but either way, Paul is actually asking someone to step in with these two women to help them mediate whatever conflict they're experiencing. So that tells me that it's okay to appoint someone, true companion, that you know is going to not rile up the situation but try to simmer it down, to try to deal with those disputes in the church. So help these women who labored with me in the gospel. Evidently, they are Christians. Uh, They're a part of the Philippian church. With Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers. Now, Clement here could be referring to the Bishop of Rome at the time, Clement, uh, or it could be referring to a specific believer in Philippi. But again, um, regardless, uh, he is imploring these other believers to help out with this division that's being dealt with. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, pay careful attention. He says, rejoice in the Lord, not rejoice in your circumstances. Now, that's very different because we can go along and stump our toe, and that's, that's not really a reason to rejoice in that circumstance. You're in a lot of pain, and nobody enjoys stumping their toe, but we rejoice in the Lord, okay? You say, well... Paul didn't have the responsibilities that I have right now. He didn't have a wife. He didn't have kids, a mortgage, what have you. But if anyone had a reason to refrain from rejoicing, it probably would have been Paul. I mean, honestly. Uh, I'm going to read to you 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 21. It just lists Paul's uh, troubles. So here we go. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles. In perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, 
in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Now, maybe Paul didn't have a mortgage. Um, He probably was married before he became a Christian, but at this point he would not be married, doesn't have any kids. Uh, So in that respect, you'd be right. Like He doesn't have those things to worry about, but he has come upon great physical affliction in his uh, journey to spread the gospel. And I want to take a look at this last little sentence that he sneaks in here. He says, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. That's kind of cool when I saw that. So Paul wasn't just worried about himself and his walk with Christ. He was worried about all these little churches that he had just planted and how they would survive, how they would be walking in their faith, growing in Christ. So that's a burden. And I know that Justin would agree, the whole Cotton family would agree, when a church is backed by you, you have a certain responsibility to that church. And that is not something to be taken lightly. So in that respect, Paul did have a lot to worry about. And still, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. We know that any time that you repeat something in the Bible, it's of great importance. So rejoice in the Lord always. Verse 5, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. This word gentleness can also be translated as patience, moderation, and yieldingness. And it's the same exact idea that uh, Paul talked about in chapter 2 when he says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So it's this yieldingness, your gentleness, putting others before yourself not fighting to the death for every little detail that you want to be right about, but letting someone else be right. It's not that big of a deal. And this is in accordance with preferences. There are some things that are hard and fast. This is right, this is wrong. But when it comes to preferences, we can't stake a flag in the ground and defend it at all costs. We need to be able to yield to other believers and let them have their liberty, which is in Christ, just as you have yours. It says, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now, this, to me, is kind of a contrast, this Lord is at hand, between the sentence before it. So, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. He doesn't want you to take things into your own hands. He... um. In fact, we are not to avenge ourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So it's not our job to repay someone for the evil that they've done, Um, but rather let your gentleness be shown, not your revenge, not your vengefulness, but your gentleness. Because we know that when the Lord does come back, And it says the Lord is at hand. That's saying that his return is imminent. It's going to be soon. So 
we need to hold off in our own ambitions as far as revenge is concerned and let that be taken care of by God because I promise we do not know the whole story, but he does. So he'll take care of that. Let him do his job. Um, let us do our job by letting the gentleness be shown. Verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Be anxious for nothing. Don't be worried about things. It's under control. And let your requests be made known to God. You see, sometimes we want this New Testament relationship with Christ, but we try to put it in an Old Testament, very strict way. So we want to come to God, but we want these steps that we can follow to make sure we get through to God every time. So people have developed like these seven steps of effective prayer. That's pretty much like garbage. Like you don't want to, don't want to worry about that too much. Um, But rather come to him as your father. We are children of God. If you have kids, I think most of you here do, do they come to you uh, with these seven steps to get what I want from dad? No. They come to you. They come to you as a child. They're pleading with you. They're saying, Daddy, can you get me this Hot Wheel? Can you get me this? Can you give me that? Um, it's, it's a childlike request. And it's not structured in any way. They have open lines of communication with you. Um, and it's that same idea here. We want to have open lines of communication with God. And it's not hindered by a legality anymore. We have that free line of communication. The priest has already fulfilled what we needed. And that's Jesus, our high priest, uh, the perfect high priest. So no longer do you need anyone between you and God, but you can go directly. Through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You see, this prayer is just the natural outflow of our new birth in Christ. It's not something that should be a cause of stress, but it should help you deal with stress by taking those things and laying them at the foot of the cross. And the effect of letting your request be made known to God is that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, it it says the peace of God, not peace with God. You already have peace with God if you're blood-bought. Jesus took care of peace with God on the cross. So his wrath is settled against you. You have peace with God, but you can have the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Now, don't think that it supplants all understanding. It doesn't take the place of understanding, but it is greater in its value than understanding. If I got news that a nuke was about to be dropped on Stephenville, and I don't know why anybody would do that, but... Anyways, um, if that were the case, and I understood everything about that event, how many 
tons of explosives were being used. What elevation would they detonate the bomb at? How fast would the plane be going when they dropped it? Um, what kind of fuel was it using? All Down to the tiniest detail. If I understood all of that, there's no guarantee of peace in that situation. Okay, and I, I guarantee you that I would not be peaceful in that situation. But if I am taking these things to God and laying them down at his feet, then we do have a peace. And in that moment, I guarantee you peace would be more important than understanding. And that's what it's saying. It's the peace of God which surpasses in value all understanding. And that will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This word guard, it's speaking of a military guard. So it's, it's a very specific word, and it means to mount guard as a sentinel or protect by military guard to prevent hostile invasion. So to me, it kind of springs up a picture of your mind with a, a big military-looking fence around it, razor wire and everything, that's guarding you from the attacks of the enemy. So it sets up a military guard for your mind. And this is the protection that Christ places around our hearts and minds when we give them to him. Verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Now, if I'm being completely honest, sometimes I don't want to think about these things all the time. I want to wallow in my self-pity and, you know, do all of those things, think about bad things. That's just the human nature. So we are called, though, to put that away and put these things in our mind. And just just a silly example, if my car gets rear-ended, um, it may set me back a little bit. I mean, I, I may feel a little bit downtrodden in that moment. But then I realize that I get to spend eternity with the creator of the universe. That the putting things into an eternal perspective, that has to cheer me up at least a little bit. So that's cool. But it does bring things into perspective. This word uh, right here, whatever things are true, you know, there's so many things in the world that are not true. And it's being fed to us, I mean, almost literally constantly. So we see all of these things around us that are not true, but we need to focus on those things that are true. And if if there is any doubt, you can find the truth in Scripture. Think about those things that are true. So whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, this noble can also mean honest or upright. It's those things that are right. They're noble. Whatever things are just. This is an unfair world. I'm sure everyone has figured that out by now, so I'm not bringing any new news to you. But it is. It's an unfair world. 
and we can waste away our lives being concerned with everything that is unjust. And it doesn't matter which side of the political spectrum you place yourself on, there are injustices, injustices in the world that will eat up your time, that will eat up your attention. And I'm not saying that we don't need to be concerned about those things. We should be, but we need to meditate on the things that are just. Okay? Whatever things are pure. Undoubtedly, there is a war on purity right now. Okay? We can see it in the news and social media. Um, what is right is being said to be wrong. And what is wrong is being said to be right. Um, they're attacking purity. So focus in on those things that are still pure. And you know, you know what that looks like. Whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea of this word meditate. Okay, it's, it's different than the meditation that's taught in Eastern religions, Buddhism, Hinduism. We're not emptying ourselves. Those Eastern religions tell you to empty yourselves and make yourself available to really whatever kind of spirit wants to come into you. But that's not the kind of meditation that we're talking about. We're talking about filling ourselves, not emptying. So we are literally filling ourselves. We're meditating on these things. Whatever things are true, whatever noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So our meditation is active. We're thinking about these things. We're actively filling ourselves with these positive things. The meditation in Eastern religions is passive. You're trying to empty yourself. Okay, so I want to make that distinction very clear. Um, this is the meditation. It's talking about prayer. It's talking about being in the Word, um, praying about the Bible, and having those things saturate your mind. You already know that what you put into your mind is bound to come back out. So, so we want to do these things. Verse 9, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. That's a pretty bold statement. I couldn't say that. But I'm glad that Paul can. Uh, he says, those things which you've learned and received and heard and saw in me, I wouldn't want you to imitate what I do. Sometimes it's decent, most of the time it's not. So the fact that Paul can say this is really reflective of what's going on in his heart. Uh, it's really reflective of where he is in his walk with Christ. So those things that you have learned and received including the things that he's just talked about uh, all through the letter and up to meditating on these good things, he wants the Philippians to do those things. It's not profitable to them if they only hear them. So you can hear this right now and think, okay, yeah, I need to think about positive things, good things, these things that are listed in Scripture. But if you don't actually go out and think about those things, 
you let your mind be degraded, then it profits you nothing. So these things do, and the God of peace will be with you. Verse 10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state that I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, Paul kind of goes back and forth here. He wants this church to understand that he's grateful for the gifts that he's given them, that they have given him, but he also wants them to understand that he was content before he received the gifts. So it is kind of a flip-flop, and it sounds like he's kind of going back and forth, but he's trying to get this point across, that he is content, but he's also thankful that they're sharing in an opportunity to give. Sometimes, well, we see tithing is pretty commonly enforced in today's church. When I say enforced, I don't mean like give or else. Sometimes it can be that way, but we're mostly just told to tithe because it's the right thing to do. And that's common in a lot of churches. Uh, but I thought it was interesting. I don't see tithing enforced in the New Testament at all. So what I do see, though, is that God loves a cheerful giver. We, You don't even have to give with money. That's sometimes even the easy way out. Okay, So it may cost you more to volunteer on a Sunday morning to teach the kids over in the fellowship hall. It may cost you more to do that than to throw five bucks in the offering box. Okay, so uh, in 2 Corinthians, it says, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So Paul doesn't want these Philippians to feel that they are obligated to give to him in his mission work, because they're not. He wants them to give out of the liberality of their hearts, and we'll see that they actually do that. Like They're very good at the way that they give. Verse 10, we're going to go back up. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. So obviously there was a time when Paul was not receiving offerings from the Philippians because it says that it's flourished again. And that word flourished uh, can also mean grow green as referring to a plant. So it's this budding giving that is, again, flourishing in them. So it says that they surely did care, but they lacked opportunity. And we know from other places in Scripture that uh, the Philippian church was fairly poor. But they had something. They may not have had a lot of money, but they had the heart to give. And in 2 Corinthians, again, this time in chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, 
It says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. That would include the Philippian church in Macedonia. That in a great trial of affliction, in the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So this whole area of Macedonia was apparently good at giving offerings. It says that last little bit, they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So by offering their hearts to the Lord, he purposed in their hearts to give to Paul and to aid in that spreading of the gospel. So we know that this church didn't have a whole lot to give, but they still provided what Paul needed for his work. And there was this period of time where Paul didn't receive offerings from them, but now he's thanking them for the offerings that they did provide. And not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state that I am to be content. I think this is really nice for me to see. Uh, You can decide for yourself, but it says that he learned to be content. He wasn't always content in every circumstance. And I'm personally still learning, and I've learned a lot in the last few years about how to be content. But I have not perfected this art. And uh, I'd be impressed if you have, and I'd like to talk to you if you have perfected that art. But it's difficult. And even today, we're being bombarded on social media. We're being bombarded in the mail, on TV, ads. They're everywhere. They're telling you that you should not be content with what you have because you need this gadget or you need this cosmetic product. Um, And even now, we're seeing uh, a bit of a shift from uh, making you discontent with what you have to making you discontent with who you are. And it goes so deeply into our culture, but it's this idea that how you look right now is not good enough. There is this idealistic image that you have to form yourself to, and who you are right now is not enough. And that's a lie. Okay? While you are still sinners, Christ died for you. And I guarantee you, he doesn't really care how you look. So this this contentment can be yours through Christ. And that's what Paul is saying that he's learned. He's learned to be content in whatever state that he's in. And he specifically says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. So in rich and in poor, he says, everywhere in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And he adds in there, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I remember when I was graduating with my undergraduate degree at Tarleton, and I had no idea what I was doing after that. 
So I had a couple different options. I was thinking about going to California to study for a while. And I was thinking about staying here. So I was juggling these ideas, honestly, <laughs> pretty much constantly in prayer about it because I simply had no idea what I needed to do. But through that and through subsequent um times when I wasn't sure where I would be stepping, um, I learned to kind of just rest in the Lord. Just give it to Him, be content with not knowing, and that was good enough for me. So I just handed these things over to the Lord, and He has provided. So a couple years later, I can say that His hand was in those decisions, and I'm extremely thankful for that because I know when left to my own devices, I would have messed that up. So I'm, I'm thankful that I've been placed where I am. But in these last few years, like I said, it, it was a learning experience and I was growing more and more content with not knowing what was going on. And even now there's a bit of that uncertainty in my life, but I can deal with it now much better than I could three years ago. Now, verse 14. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again from my necessities. So this church in Philippi is historically been good to Paul. Uh, even in the beginning of the gospel, when he left them, they continued to support him in his mission. Now, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. This tells me that God's economy operates differently than ours. This this church in Thessalonica, I'm sorry, this church in Philippi, Paul wants to share in the fruit that abounds from his missionary work. So that tells me that the contributors, the enablers of missionary work, get some of the fruit eternally that abounds from the people who are actually doing the journey. So you share in this fruit. Paul is saying, I don't want your money just because I want to get rich. I want you to share in giving with me so that you can share in the reward of my work. And that's what he's saying here. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Now, we know from some of what Jesus says uh, in Matthew 6 that every work that you do is not going to be counted towards your heavenly check marks. Okay, If you do something with the intent that you will be recognized from others for doing it, eh, Wrong. So look at this. 
Jesus says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue. They actually did that. When someone would like make an offering, they would sound trumpets and call attention to this person. They would reap their reward on earth for that charitable deed as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Okay, delayed gratification. Paul wants this church in Philippi to share in that delayed gratification with him. Verse 18. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, he does specifically say need, not want. So he does not promise to supply every want according to his riches, but simply he knows what you need. He knows what you need to carry out the work that he's placed in front of you, and he will provide that according to his riches in glory. So we can't, and you know, some people do, but we can't think that just because we believe that we will have a Porsche in the future. That doesn't mean that you're going to have a Porsche in the future. Okay? That's that's misguided. But God places you in places that will demand things of you. And I do believe that uh, the saying, God will not give you more than you can handle, I believe that's completely false. I I believe that he will give you things that you can't handle by yourself. But that teaches you to rely on him and to lean on him and receive these things which are from his riches. So he will enable you to do what he's called you to do. Okay. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now as we come into the the end of Philippians, He's just going to wrap up the letter to this church and um, greet them from his little party in Rome. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So that does it for Paul's letter to the Philippians. Next time I'm up here, we are going to just go straight into Colossians. And I I love Colossians. It's another short little book, but it's packed with good stuff. So I am looking forward to that, and I hope that y'all are too. So let's close in a word of prayer.